Hey everybody, what's up? It's MJ. Welcome to a very special episode of the Black Wine Guy Experience. If you follow me on Instagram or are a fan of the show, you know I love discovering, drinking, and sharing incredible gems from maverick winemakers with fascinating backstories. Today I'm going to do that and even more. This is the first in a series of conversations with some of the world's finest winemakers that you may not know yet. And a first here on the show, you'll actually be able to buy the wines discussed here with a simple text from your phone. More on that as we go, but let's get started. Hey everybody, what's up? It's your boy MJ, and I'm thrilled today for my guest. He is the president, owner, manager of an iconic estate that I'm sure a lot of you have heard of. Um, and he is he really is a definition of a renaissance man. Um, my guest today is Piero Mastro Berardino. Um, and, <laughs> and feel free to correct that. <laughs> which, uh, <laughs> yes, it was not too bad. <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, Piero is the 10th generation to run the family winery. And it's the oldest in the Campania region. Uh, Piero took over the wine after his father, Antonio, retired in 2005. His father was a leader of modern winemaking in Italy and was instrumental in preserving the ancient native varietals of the Campania region. Uh, wine is the rhythm of Piero's life, but as his life, Piero's heart beats for more than one love. As a published poet, artist, and scholar, uh, Piero and his family have a very rich history full of incredible stories in and out of the wine business, and I really can't wait to get started. Welcome, Piero. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Um, before we dive into you and your family's history, uh, please tell us a little about the wine that we're drinking today. Oh, uh, today we are having uh, a kind of a flagship of the family that is uh, Radici Taurasi. Uh, the harvest is the 2016. Radici Taurasi um, is made from Aglianico grape. Aglianico is a very noble and ancient grape varietal dating back to the Greeks. So the period in which the Greeks came in Southern Italy uh, to colonize the, the Southern part of our peninsula. And uh, so Aglianico was a variety that they introduced in the region, but the Romans gave value to Aglianico uh, through the, with the production of the famous uh, big red wines of the Romans that were uh, very famous for the big uh, aging potential. You know, the Romans uh, uh, used to drink their beautiful red wines even after one century. And this is something that uh, we still can enjoy with, uh, with our Taurasi. Um, yeah, this is just to give you an idea, a bottle of the 20s. So a bottle that is almost one century old and it's wow. still very enjoyable. So this is really something that makes the difference about this uh, wine and this wine region. Aglianico and Taurasi Appellation uh, gives this wine that uh, in the big, big vintages uh, uh, is really amazing in terms of aging potential together with the a beautiful expression of the terroir. We are in the middle of the mountains here. So we are high elevation. We got a very cold uh, environment in winter and also during summer and night, it's very cool and fresh. And this is very helpful to get this uh, nice uh, acidity to this wine together with the mm, verticality that comes from the minerals of the soil. So we got these two characteristics, the acid, the freshness on one side, and the sapidity, I would say sometimes the saltiness that comes from the soil character. So this is more or less the style of a wine like this. That is a wine from the mountains, so this means that you don't have to expect a hyper concentration, but you always look for agility, finesse, and elegance and balance. 
Well, wow. Um, like I'm, I'm sure so many people are listening are already wondering how they can get their hands on this wine. So I just want to pause for a second before we take a dive into your family history. Um, you know, I've got the coolest and easiest way for you guys to get your hands on this wine. All you have to do is text Piero, that's P-I-E-R-O, to 351-444-W-I-N-E. So that's 351-444-WINE, and just text Piero. Um, you'll instantly get a text back with all the details about the wine, price, shipping, and all the info you need. It really is that simple. You pick up your phone, you text Piero, P-I-E-R-O, to 351 444 W-I-N-E, that's 351-444-9463. Follow the prompts and the text, and you'll get these amazing bottles delivered right to your door. All right, so let's get back. We were talking about you're in the mountains, you're in Campania, um, and this beautiful Radici. Let's start at the beginning, because you're the 10th generation to continue the wine yeah. business. I, I can't fathom, as you know, in America, we can't fathom 10 generations. It just, it's astounding. Like, so your family's on this property for how many years? Uh, it's uh, almost three centuries. Wow. Now. So yeah. your family's on the property longer than, almost longer than America's been a country. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was the beginning of 1700s. So well, we have the first information of the family investing in the region in, uh, in a property that was in a small village called uh, Santo Stefano del Sole. That is just uh, five minutes drive far from uh, the headquarter of uh, of uh, the company. And uh, in this uh, document that is uh, dated 1735, there is the description of uh, the vineyards that were in the property that were planted with Fiano grape. So this is a family that was a kind of a pioneer in opening international markets for Italian wine. Even if it was a very small family business, uh, they were able at the end of 1800s to cover uh, most of the continents and in 1920, they covered all the continents of the world. So they, they were uh, really extremely, uh, I mean, uh, fond and passionate about, uh, about all these, even uh, sometimes not that rational, because, you know, sometimes <laughs> you make choices that uh, are not uh, typical of, of a firm, of a not business. Not me, Piero. I never make choices. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know exactly what you mean. And, um, you know, I, I love history, and I think that's people who love wine, uh, really love wine. It's the, it's the stories behind it. And you were just sharing, uh, I believe it was your, um, your grandfather, McKelly traveled to the U S all over Europe. Like he was like an ambassador for, uh, I think you just said, not just the wines from your state, but the entire region. Is that, is that safe to say? Uh, for sure. For sure. Um, uh, Michele, my grandfather was the son of, uh, Angelo Mastro Berardino. That was the, that was a, a knight of the King of Italy, Cavaliere del Re. And, uh, Angelo, his father, was uh, the real visionary man, was the guy that uh, in the second half of 1800s decided to start working on the internationalization of, uh, of the brand and the, the company and the wines. So he started, um, you know, uh, opening this relationship with people um, that were of Italian origin, but living in North America and then in Latin America. Uh, of course, he started from Europe. But then uh, he decided to go to these uh, places because in the meantime, we have the first flow of emigration from Italy to the Americas uh, in, at the end of 1800s. At the same time, this Angelo starts um, um, sending the wines to international uh, wine contests. So he starts 
taking part to this, uh, you know, um, important events in which he gets very interesting awards. So when Michele, his son, gets into the business, he can be really an ambassador of the brand worldwide because uh, he, he finds uh, a base on which he can, you know, start building the presence on the market, base made by his father, Angelo. Wow. wow. So Michele, Michele went uh, to, to New York the first time. It was uh, the end of 1800s, beginning of 1900s, and Michele uh, used as a, um, as a house, uh, the house of some cousins of us that were just emigrated to New York. So they, they lived in New York. Uh, part of Master Berardino family was there. And, uh, and uh, Michele used to stay there and then to travel all around from there to, you know, uh, open the different markets in different cities. This is, um, I mean, this is just fascinating story. It's, it's, uh, it's incredible. Um, like you were talking about, like we, we did some research and we, we, understand that you, your family, ha you have a great story about the early 1920s uh, when you were shipping some wine and it was got stuck on a ship and it was held for ransom. <laughs> yes, yes. This is another part of the story. We got many, many interesting stories to tell. Uh, we got a museum here in the family uh, that covers these three centuries with plenty of papers. And so all these stories can be read directly by the visitors. They can come here and have a direct experience uh, with all these events. But uh, uh, Michele, um, Michele was uh, really a, a pioneer in his generation. And uh, among these travels, uh, uh, in 1920, he decided to open uh, the Argentina and Brazil markets. Uh, this was uh, because uh, North America, and particularly the United States, were suffering the period of prohibitionism. So the, the yeah, market uh, <laughs> yeah, the market in North America was uh, you know closing was uh, becoming smaller and smaller and so he, he decided to open Argentina where uh, we also had many emigrants from Italy at the time as well so he arranged this trip to uh, Argentina in 1920 he had the cargo bringing the wines uh, uh, on this ship that was named Cogne that uh, left uh, from Genoa in uh, September 1920. And then after some weeks, uh, uh, he was not able to have any more information about this cargo, about the, the wines that were going to be shipped uh, to Argentina. And so he decided to go to, to, to look for the, the wines and, and the ship, of course. And so he went through Gibraltar and then he, he, he passed uh, uh, through the Equator line. And so there's the description of, with these letters that is used to send every day to the family, uh, description of this really beautiful travel uh, and, and the parties uh, on the deck of the boat and everything. And, and we got pictures also of that uh, travel. And so when uh, he arrives uh, uh, at Buenos Aires, uh, he, got, he got the information that uh, the famous uh, poet, uh, Gabriele D'Annunzio, uh, one of the most famous poets that we have had uh, in Italy uh, in 1920 was uh, organized. He, he was a, you know, a very uh, strong man. <laughs> he wanted to um, recover, to bring back to Italy some of the lands that after World War I uh, were not anymore in uh, the territories of uh, Italian uh, uh, reign at the time. We had the king at the time. And so Gabriele D'Annunzio occupied the, the city of Fiume, 
and uh, uh, started a dictatorship on Fiume. Uh, as the Italian government didn't want this, the Italian government uh, made an embargo against D'Annunzio. And so D'Annunzio started stealing boats in order to bring food and wine to the population in Fiume. And one of these boats was carrying more wines. So there is a, a very long you know, story that lasts six months during which uh, my grandfather Michele has to, you know, bargain with the poet, with D'Annunzio, <laughs> and D'Annunzio asks him 25% uh, of the value of the goods as ransom uh, in order to give the wine back. Uh, what is funny that, uh, um, is that uh, in the next uh, 20 years, up to 1940, so up to the beginning of World War II, we got plenty of uh, uh, distributors and accounts in Fiume. Because <laughs> was a kind of a promoter of our wines in Fiume. So we have in, in our museum, we got uh, plenty of letters of these uh, wine buyers from Fiume City uh, up to World War II. Well, I got to tell you, after we're done, we have to talk about the movie rights. I want the movie rights to your family's history because uh, <laughs> it's like kind of like, uh, you know, Pirates of Caribbean meets Sideways <laughs> in the United States. Um, uh, it's just amazing. And at least he was a civilized dictator. He wanted to bring food and wine to the people. So, you know, um, yeah. that's that's <laughs> that's yeah. incredible. Um, and you, you mentioned um, the market was shrinking in the United States um, due to pro, pro, prohibition, prohibition. And um, you shared with us a couple of uh, letters um, that you received from U.S. importers in 1932. Um I mean, this is amazing. Like, talk about like we have one from uh, a, a importer in Texas, one from out of New York. Like, I, I, yeah. I think about as you're saying he had to, he, got, he had to go on a ship around Gibraltar looking for it, and like we just get on a plane and and we get upset because it takes eight hours to get over to Italy, you know. <laughs> and then we and we don't we shoot emails. These guys wrote a letter. They didn't know it was going to get there to you. Um, <laughs> what, what what I mean. Obviously, you're a history buff. What what is when you see stuff like this? What does it do for you? And like I said, obviously, I'm coming over to see the museum. But what does this do? What does it do for you growing up as a child to see this type of significance and the the, the role your family has played in history? Well, what is very interesting is the popularity of the brand in the 20s and 30s, because uh, with the prohibition, we have a problem. Uh, so the the last uh, importing contract from the U.S. Uh, in our museum is dated uh, 1920. But then uh, during the next uh, uh, 10 years, uh, we, we have shipments to US. I don't know how, <laughs> I don't know where the wines were distributed, but uh, they went on shipping some wine. And it was not the business of uh, uh, the, the beginning of the 90s, but there was still some business. And then uh, the, in 1932, there is um, the, you know, the electoral campaign for the presidential elections of 33, and Roosevelt does the campaign announcing that uh, if he's going to be elected, it will repeal the Volstead Act, the Prohibitionist Act. And so uh, at, the, uh, at the moment before his election, all these guys from the wine business in the States start writing letters to the family in order to get the representation of the brand in, in each of the states. So we got about 30 of those letters coming from almost everywhere from the States, asking for the brand uh, 
representation and asking for the wine list, uh, the brochure, description of uh, you know, the, the capacity of the, the bottles and so on. Also, some of them ask for uh, samples of the labels uh, in order to have an idea of the presentation of the, of the, the wines. So it's uh, extremely modern. The approach is extremely modern. They also explain uh, something about uh, the supply chain, how they are going to arrange the promotion, uh, the marketing budget. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's really like uh, something that we, we are doing now, exactly the same. Exactly what happens uh, in the letter uh, that I also sent you, one of the letters from 1912, when Michele was in New York City and was describing the way to promote the wines in the US market, and he says to his father, I'm going to visit uh, from Montreal all the way down to New Orleans. Uh, and then, you know, so 20 cities in 20 days, it will cost about $300 uh, by train. And he's asking the permission to his father to spend this money in order to promote the wines through these cities. So, I mean, uh, after one century, uh, things are very similar in the wine business. Oh my God. I was just thinking it's incredible. Hey guys, these letters are really cool. I'll actually post them on my Instagram, uh, at some point. Um, uh, so they're really, it's mind boggling. And as I was listening to you, what you just said about how it's still very similar in the wine business, it's, it's, you have to hit the street. Like people don't get like, like, and they were asking for the label back then. And like, now, now you just go online, you can go download the tech sheet, but like you had to put that, these packages together, send them over everything's the same. It's just, we can do it a little bit faster now, but it, it's the same process. And I, I think a lot of people, um, unless they're in the business, don't realize how much goes into um, getting a wine from Italy into their hands in the United States or, or anywhere else around the world. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm like mind boggling. And, 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 and I was thinking of the cost back then, like $300, that's like a lot of money back then, like, you know, and, and, and the audacity to go from Montreal to New Orleans, um, really pioneering stuff. It, it's, this is fast. I'm geeking out. This is so fascinating. Um, yeah, there are also periods in which the uh, situation is not so, you know, um, uh, good. Yeah. All of this um, uh, success goes down. Everything is destroyed with World War II uh, in, in 1940 situation becomes, uh, you know, worse uh, and worse. And then uh, we got some markets that start closing. Some other markets still work. Uh, Switzerland went on buying the wines during all the period of World War II and even other European countries. But uh, we have the occupation of the Nazis in many of these countries. So uh, Norway agent for us from Oslo writes uh, during the war under the occupation. He, he sends a letter and he's writing in German. Not, not anymore wow. in his language, he's writing in German, and there is the swastik of uh, the control of uh, Hitler on each of those letters. So we got uh, many documents of World War II where uh, distribution of the wines becomes harder, and uh, the family goes on. Uh, even under the bombing that we had in 1943, in late September, uh, my family built uh, a refugee against the bombs uh, here in the cellars. We still have it. And uh, the family stayed in the refugee um, for um, three days, uh, September 30 up to October 2. And October 3, we, they come, they go out. My father writes a letter. He was 15 years old, writes a letter to his father that was uh, uh, under the army. 
And it says, we went out and we went to do our harvest. It was not a big one, but we did our job. Wow. So we got bottles uh, even from uh, the, the, the period of the war, of course. Oh my God, this is just, your family's a treasure trove of just history. <laughs> Not even just watch, just history. Um, that's amazing. 15 years old. Um, people can't even write a full text. We use emojis and, and a 15 year old is writing <laughs> letters to his father at their front line. And then he goes out to the harvest. Okay. You millennials, there's something for you to learn there. <laughs> um, that's just incredible. That's, that's amazing. Now there's just this sense of reverence for history and life. I, I get from your family. Um, were you, did you know you were going to end up taking over the family business? Was that always the plan or? Um, uh, yes and no. I mean, um, when you uh, grow up in a family business and you live in a, in a, in a house that is also a cellar. And so you, <laughs> you smell the fermentation flavors during a, a harvest every year. You know, these are things that uh, probably convince you in a very subtle way, yeah, you don't really realize when it's <laughs> the turning point of your decision. But uh, I must say that uh, um, my father wanted um, um, that I ended up my studies before getting into the business. So uh, what is what I find extremely exciting is the fact that uh, with my collaborators around here in the company, we every day plan the future and uh, explore in some sense the future, uh, thinking uh, in having a concept behind each bottle of wine and uh, giving a reason to each wine for being there. This is not just a matter of passion. In the wine uh, business, uh, time is kind of a circle. So things go and then come back. Your wine, um, Tarasi, well, Tarasi, particularly is, is often referred to as the Barolo of the South. Talk about the flavor profile of Alianico versus that of Nebbiolo. What, what, how would you as a winemaker and a scholar and just a general incredible person oh. who has wine knowledge, <laughs> how would you compare those? Do you, do you think that's a fair comparison or like, what do you think? Well, the comparison was uh, mainly for the uh, austere character, the, you know, the, the serious character of the two grapes that is similar. Mm -hmm. um, in the past, uh, they had uh, more or less even the same, same period of uh, maturation of harvest. But uh, uh, now uh, in Piedmont with Barolo, they are harvesting earlier due to the effects of probably of global warming that we are not suffering that much because we are in the middle of the mountains of the Apennini. And so we have a, um, a very protected uh, environment. Um, then... Uh, uh, Coming to the tasting profile, we got uh, violet uh, flavors. That is uh, the, the, the first uh, hints, you know, very typical of, of an Alianico wine. And then we got a cherry as a, as a fruit that is uh, very, very uh, typical as well. Cherry is in common with Nebbiolo grapes as well, so with the Barolo. Uh, then we've got uh, uh, a lot of uh, red and uh, uh, darker berries in the bouquet. And uh, also we got a lot of spices. Uh, what is uh, characteristic of this wine is the variety of spices. 
So we got this uh, flavors uh, uh, reminding pepper. We got uh, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, the cigar box that is mm -hmm. extremely elegant. We got coffee, we got uh, chocolate hints. So it's really complex. And uh, if you leave it in the glass, uh, in two hours, uh, you will have all these flavors coming out, you know, in different moments. And if you have time to enjoy, you will really appreciate, uh, you know, the old uh, expression of a wine like this, the complexity of a wine like this. What's the oldest bottle you have? Like, how, what are some of the oldest vintages you have in your cellar at, at the estate? Well, we got, uh, we got uh, a full story of the last century, dating back to the 20s, so one century ago. We got the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. You know, um, we, we have many, many different vintages in our uh, family library. And so uh, sometimes we arrange uh, huge vertical tasting, you know, comparing maybe 50 different vintages. And uh, it's really amazing because uh, it's not only a matter of the quality of a harvest uh, that is important, of course. So a 68 or a 77 or a 61 are huge vintages, uh, very famous for the collectors. But uh, there is also the possibility to analyze the evolution of the style of uh, the winemaker during the different generations. Uh, so there are periods in which uh, the uh, alcohol content is a little higher and the concentration is a little higher. Sometimes it's, it's less. So uh, style changes a lot during the decades. So it's also uh, a way to understand what was the evolution of taste in wine business during the centuries. Do you have a particular uh, favorite winemaker? <laughs> is it you or do you have a <laughs> you my father on the back? <laughs> my father is my favorite. That's why I'm uh, reproposing, uh, you know, the style of the Taurasis from the 60s, because I think that uh, the, the elegance and finesse of that period uh, was really outstanding. Yeah. And I look for, in, in a big red wine, I don't want to have, uh, you know, this high concentration. I prefer to have uh, elegance, finesse, and uh, um, as I was saying before, agility in the glass. I, like I don't want to, to have a heavy wine that sits on your palate. I want to have this vibrant uh, freshness and uh, uh, the wine in the glass must express the soil and the environment. Well, I mean, it's beautiful. Like I... The nose, like you said, it get violet, and then I'm getting cherry. Once you started all the spices, I was like, "Oh, look at there's a little hint of espresso." Oh, I'm getting uh, anise. Um, it it is incredibly complex. Um, definitely a wine that um, you need to drink slowly, like you said, and allow it to evolve in the glass. So I can't have this with my wife because it's like a race to get to the bottom of the bottle sometimes. Um, <laughs> But because it, I mean it's it's just changed over the like the forty five minutes we've been talking right now it's 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 opening up, um, yeah. And with that, what what do you like if someone is going to drink this young? Do you suggest they decant it? Like if someone's like, like I'm not waiting twenty, should they decant it or just like you said, just drink it slowly? Come you know, pour a glass, you, put the bottle away, come back. What do you think? Okay, and when it's uh, a little older, after uh, over 20 years, uh, I prefer to decant it. Okay. Uh, because, of course, the environment in the bottle is uh, small and uh, you want to have the wine, you know, breathe, breathe a little bit. Uh, if it's younger, you don't really need 
to do it uh, if you have the appropriate glass like you have uh, it's you know i mean it's uh, enough that you open the bottle area if you don't decant it just open it uh, 20 minutes before the service and then when you go to the glass uh, you know no hurry relax as you were saying <laughs> take your time and uh, uh, experience the evolution in the glass and that is something that i love because uh, 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 an important wine, a complex wine, wants to have this kind of attention. So you, you have to dedicate uh, yourself to what is happening in the glass. And yeah. this is something that, you know, stimulates also the reflections. Yeah, it, it, it's what we would call a high maintenance wine. You have to you have to pay attention to it. You have to love it and watch it evolve. Um, you know, speaking of the, uh, these these great wines, the um, oh, actually, not even that. You mentioned your, your father was your favorite winemaker and you're going back to style because of the elegance of the 60s. Um, what, was the big, what was the biggest challenge stepping into those shoes of your father? Uh, my father, I mean, uh, was uh, one of the five or six uh, most important winemakers of Italy uh, since uh, the after World War II period. Wow. wow. And so, uh, I mean... Uh, he was uh, very well appreciated, and uh, when he got uh, his uh, success in the uh, in early seventies, so when the big vintages of the sixties uh, became, you know, very famous on the markets, uh, um, many people from uh, different countries uh, uh, offered him uh, a lot of money <laughs> to make him uh, leave the company, the family business, and uh, move to. Uh, United States uh, to China, you know, to to start uh, new processes of uh, development of of the wine business there, and uh, he, he refused it. And uh, uh, I remember this because, uh, of course, uh, even if the brand is very famous, the, the the family business is very small, so it was not comparable with the money that people wanted to put on yeah. the table. Yeah. But uh, but uh, he, he said. Uh, his approach was uh, very romantic, and he said, "I have a mission here. I have to, I have to work here for the future of this family. And uh, after so many generations, uh, I cannot really accept, you know, to interrupt. And uh, I think uh, this uh, family must have its future under its um, own brand name. And so this is something that I really remember because I, I, I saw these delegations of Chinese people in the 70s coming to the winery. I remember this, I was a, I was a kid and it uh, was really impressive for me. And, um, um, and then also it was uh, very strong and motivating. He was not very tall, he was not very strong physically, <laughs> but uh, he, had, he had a motivation inside and... Uh, <laughs> And my father had to face the World War II. And so after the war, the situation was too bad. And the family, you know, went down and everything, the economy was destroyed. So after 20 years of suffering, he was able to bring the family back to success. So I think, I, I think that this was really, uh, the, the strength probably came from here, from this uh, message. Yeah. And, you know, it, it makes sense why the wine is the way it is, why it, it, it can stand the test of time. Your family has stood the test of time. Very resilient, um, <laughs> proud, yet humble. Yeah. Um, in 2006, uh, 
your Reserva was included in the Wine Spectator's Top 100 Wines, the 2006. Yeah. Uh, for 2013, it was in the Top 100 Wines, and um, it has received the most awards of your wine on an international level. What makes that vintage so special? Um, it was not one of the top vintages. <laughs> 2006 it was a very rainy one, no? and uh, I was very scared because uh, sometimes when rain is too much, uh, you risk uh, not to produce any bottle of Taurasi because uh, the, the strategic part of maturation process is in October. If you get rain in October, it can be really a tragedy. And 2006 was a difficult one. So at the beginning, when we released the wine, uh, I was uh, I was uh, concerned uh, that that one wouldn't have been the best vintage to remember. I mean, and uh, then after a couple of years, we released the Reserva, and uh, we got this beautiful award. And then I understood that you know, I understood that you know sometimes nature is uh, is stronger than than man. And uh, can you know can make corrections can you know can change perspectives, wow. uh, but this is it's a very funny thing because uh, 2004 and 2005 are for sure uh, twice bigger as vintages than the 06. So if you have 04, 05, and 06 on the table, just go to 04 as the very best, and then to 05, and the 06 will be the third. But the award was on a six, and uh, it happens. I mean, <laughs> that's that's so that's such a great story, Piero. Thank you for taking me and my <laughs> listeners on an incredible journey through your family's history. Thank you for creating the. You know, it's like these are works of art. These these to me these are works of art. Um, and your family has has brought these to the world, and 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 like I said, your father's mission was to make sure that these were out in the world and your family's your family's name is now uh in history it'll be in history forever no matter what um thank you so and, much uh, i appreciate yeah thank you I so appreciate much. And, and thank you thank you for giving me the possibility to exchange the experiences with you and uh, you know with the people that are listening and uh, i think that uh, it's very important to get people involved more and more in the fascination and the magic uh, of uh, wines, visiting uh, a vineyard and visiting uh, a cellar. Absolutely. I'm not going to say anything else. I'm going to wrap up. Until the next time, everybody, cheers to the Mavericks, philosophers, deep thinkers. You qualify for all those, my good friend. And all you wine drinkers, peace. Okay. It's time to order your bottles of 2016 Radici Tarassi DOCG from Mastro Berardino in Campania, Italy. Simply text Piero, P-I-E-R-O, to 351-444-W-I-N-E. That's 351-444-9463. That's Piero, P-I-E. R O three five one four 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 W I N E. That's three five one four 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 nine four six three. You'll instantly get a text back. It'll give you all the details about the wine, the price, shipping, all of it. It's super simple. Couldn't be simpler. You're not going to get a million emails. After that, sit back, relax, and know that this. 
beautiful gem of a wine is on its way. 